Hello and welcome to the Catholic Information Center. My name is Rosemary Eldridge and I'm delighted to be here today with Dr. Michael Breidenbach and Dr. Chad Pecknold. We're here to discuss Michael's new book, Our Dear Bot Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. Now, before we begin the lecture, I'd like to take a brief moment to encourage you to follow the CIC on social media and to sign up for our e-newsletter. This is hands down the best way to stay up to date on all the intellectual and spiritual programming that the CIC has to offer. And with that, I give the screen to our friend, Dr. Chad Pecknold. Thanks so much, Rosemary. It's great to be here. I'm, I, I actually have been associated with the CIC for a long time now as a teaching fellow of the Leonine Fellows. And um, so when I was asked uh, to uh, help with this uh, discussion of Michael Breidenbach's book, I was happy to do it, even though I am on vacation. So um, I come to you in the in the relaxed uh, measure of a polo shirt instead of my usual sharpness. So, uh, but it's an important book, and I wanted to to participate in this discussion of it. Dr. Michael Breidenbach has been a friend uh, for a number of years. He uh, did his PhD in history uh, at King's College at the University of Cambridge, where I also did my PhD. And so we have a, a Cantabrigian bond. He is associate professor and chair of history at Ave Maria University, one of our great Catholic universities in this country. His research interests concern the history of political, legal, and religious thought, especially in early America and the Atlantic world. He has particular interests in religious liberty, church and state, the relationship between religion and politics. He's the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment and Religious Liberty, published last year by Cambridge University Press. And just recently, he's published with Harvard University Press, Our Dear Bot Liberty, Catholics and Religious Toleration in Early America. I was privileged to be a part of a group uh, who workshopped uh, it as a manuscript before it became uh, the book you have before you. Uh, it is a fascinating history. Um, as, as will be no surprise, Catholics have a history of either taking over things or being taken over. Uh, we're usually at the center of things, um, even if that means being martyred. So it's almost unsurprising that the history that Professor Michael Breidenbach has shown us uh, is uh, giving us the centrality of Catholics in the American founding, and both in the 17th and 18th centuries, that Catholics played a central role, and especially a central role in uh, forging uh, a new doctrine of religious liberty uh, in a new land. One of the grand genealogical critiques of America, um, which is often made today, concerns the founders' debts to Enlightenment liberalism. John Locke in particular. Uh, John Locke because he famously excluded atheists and Catholics from his mere Christianity policy of religious toleration. That story of a kind of Lockean uh, deposit in the American founding um, is a useful story insofar as it explains an undeniable strand of anti-Catholicism in our country. It explains why Catholics were always held suspect as potentially disloyal, or as Locke had it, loyal to a foreign potentate, um, namely the Pope in Rome. Um, 
but it doesn't capture everything. Uh, and so Professor Breidenbach tells a different story, um, a different story that doesn't dismiss Locke's influence, but argues that America's view of religious liberty inscribed in the First Amendment was not a Lockean uh, achievement, but a Catholic one. Or rather, it was Catholics who were achieving their own liberty in helping to shape the First Amendment. In this way, Breidenbach tells a story of America's unexpected debt to Catholics who were forging a doctrine of religious liberty drawn not from Locke, but from their own conciliarist tradition, which goes all the way back to the 13th century Dominican philosopher John of Paris. It's out of that deposit that Professor Breidenbach argues. Rather, rather it's out of that deposit uh, and not the Lockean one, uh, where we draw our first freedom from as Americans. So, as Breidenbach tells the story, Catholics responded to charges of disloyalty by denying papal infallibility and the Pope's authority to intervene in civil affairs. Rome staunchly rejected such dissent, but reform-minded Catholics justified their stance by looking to conciliarism, by this intellectual tradition which goes all the way back to John of Paris, which was compatible and not in conflict with the Republican view of temporal independence and church-state separation. This is important historical scholarship that Professor Breidenbach has given us. It helps us to understand why Catholics belong at the center of the American story, uh, even if we can dispute what the centrality uh, of their achievement signifies. So please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Michael Breidenbach to discuss his brand new book, uh, Our Dear Bot Liberty. Well, thank you very much, Chad, for that very generous introduction. And it's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, thank you again for coming to that manuscript workshop when it was an inchoate argument and uh, you and many others um, along the way have helped it. Uh, to come uh, to its uh, full fruition. And I also want to thank uh, the Catholic Information Center for hosting this event. Um, I, I have been to the CIC many times uh, during my visits to Washington, DC. It's a splendid uh, place for Catholics and Catholic curious to come together uh, and discuss ideas like this. Um, and uh, being a very at the heart of DC, I think is incredibly important for for the Catholic Church um, to be relevant and um, being a part of, of this country. And that is indeed the topic of uh, the book, which is how Catholics uh, became American. What's the relevance of the Catholic tradition and contribution to the United, or what became the United States? And how does that continue today? Now, I'd be remiss to not note uh, that the CIC is a, just a few blocks away from the White House where the second Catholic president now calls home. And many people have noted that Joe Biden is a Catholic president, uh, but few have noted how extraordinary it is that we've had not one, but two Catholic presidents at all. That is in light of the pervasive anti-Catholicism throughout American history, it's extraordinary. I mean, not to mention the fact that we have a Catholic majority Supreme Court at the moment, the last three speakers of the House have been Catholic. There are many Catholics in halls of power throughout the United States. And you might expect 
um, that President Biden's Catholicism to be questioned, as it was with John F. Kennedy when he was presidential candidate, and before that, uh, Governor Al Smith of New York. But not very much criticism has been levied, I think, uh, by Protestants on President Biden's Catholicism, or that he's Catholic, as we might expect, given the four centuries of anti-Catholicism. Instead, Biden's Catholicism is under scrutiny now by Catholics. Starting today, the United States uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, is meeting to consider drafting national guidance on whether bishops should deny communion to Catholic public figures who are publicly known to support laws that permit grave moral evils. And the clear subject uh, subtext of this, of course, is that the second Catholic president's uh, view on U.S. abortion laws is, is favorable. Um, and uh, many have argued uh, that he should not uh, be able to receive communion in light of that uh, of view that goes against Catholic teaching. Now, regardless of the USCCB's ultimate decision on this matter, as they're working it out this week, the present and deep rift among Catholic bishops that we've seen over the past few weeks over what's been called Eucharistic worthiness or coherence indicates deeper tensions among American Catholics and not just among the bishops. Among these divisions, and there are many, but among them is what role a Catholic cleric, whether the Pope, a bishop, or a priest, should play in advising or disciplining a public leader who's Catholic on moral matters of political importance. So at the core of this issue, I think, is this drama that we've seen play out since at least the Middle Ages, which is what is the proper relationship between church and state? An issue that has animated much of the history of American Catholicism, but also American history generally. Now, what I wanna suggest today is that there's been an enduring strategy in response to charges that Catholics deliver themselves up to an authority higher than American law. I mean, that after all seems to be one of the responses, one of the main responses uh, when um, people say that uh, Catholics are, are dangerous, that they will deliver themselves so to a higher authority, uh, their local bishop or ultimately the Pope. Take for instance, the first Catholic presidential candidate, John F. Kennedy. As many of you know, in 1960, Kennedy affirmed to a crowd of Protestant ministers that quote, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be a Catholic, how to act. I do not speak for the church on public matters and the church does not speak for me. Now this sort of argument is, I wanna argue, part of a long tradition of American Catholicism. It doesn't st start in the 1960s. Um, it's, it, it, its tale is, is very long indeed, stretching back to the founding of the American colonies. So today I wanna to tell you the story of Catholics from early uh, America in English colonies to the founding of the United States, keeping in mind this sort of central tension um, between Catholics loyalty to um, its, the church's teachings, to bishops, to the Bishop of Rome in particular, and their English or American identities. And, and the first person I want to uh, highlight is George Calvert. Uh, those who uh, come from Maryland might know that the Calvert name um, uh, looms quite large in the city of Baltimore, uh, the first Lord Baltimore, that's George Calvert, 
uh, or Calvert uh, um, uh, Rhodes and so on, or Calvert County. Uh, George Calvert is, you might call him, the founder of Maryland. And he was baptized Catholic in uh, Yorkshire, in Northern England, uh, but faced religious persecution. Uh, he was forced to conform to the Church of England uh, at a very young age, and um, that allowed him to enter the halls of, of English society, uh, halls of power, in fact. He was able to go to Trinity College, Oxford, for instance. Um, and after a clerkship, he became a member of parliament and eventually the first secretary of state to King James I. Um, this is an extraordinary position. This is one of the highest positions uh, in the English state at the time. But at the very height of his, his career, he reverts to his childhood Catholicism and was forced to resign his, his post uh, in the Privy Council. And that's simply because at this time, this is in the 1630s, it was not possible uh, to be a public office holder and a public Catholic. Uh, this of course is a time of, of great anti-Catholic law, uh, political culture and religion. So after his resignation, he turns to what had simply before been a side interest, which is colonizing uh, the English domains in North America. His first colony was what he called Avalon, which is in modern day Newfoundland. And um, it was very hard going. Uh, more than half of the settlers died uh, in the first winter. Um, but the point of this colony, as he saw it, was in the first instance, uh, to promote the king's dominions. He was a strong royalist. He wanted to remain loyal to the king who had granted him uh, this, this land um, and who had not persecuted him for becoming uh, Catholic publicly, although he could have under the law. Um, and so he wanted to, as it were, extend the king's dominions. Uh, it was an economic interest as well. Uh, and Part of the rationale was to extend Christianity to the new world, to evangelize to the Native Americans and so on. But of course, one of the most intriguing parts of George Calvert's colonial project was that he wanted a Christian ecumenical kind of colony, one where Protestants and Catholics could live side by side openly without uh, uh, discord and with toleration. And so one of, the, one of the examples of this radical kind of toleration was that George Calvert allowed Protestants to worship in his own house. News got back to Europe about this and the papal nuncio in Brussels was, was furious. Um, this was not according to, to church discipline. This was um, as it were breaking bread with heretics as they saw them. And so um, this was the kind of, of extent to which George Calvert wanted to uh, bring together Christians um, in this kind of colonial experiment away from the rigors of penal laws in England. Now, George Calvert, um, because Avalon was such an economic disaster, he wanted to set up a new colony further south, and that was Maryland. Uh, unfortunately, uh, George Calvert died just a few uh, days before the final seal was set on the Maryland Charter, which then was bequeathed to his son, Cecil Calvert, the second Lord Baltimore. And here we have the most important uh, early American Catholic colonist. Cecil Calvert was like his father, um, a, a Protestant in the beginning uh, and was thereby allowed to go to Trinity College, Oxford, 
uh, and uh, practice law and so on. Uh, but most of his efforts were part, uh, went to Maryland. Uh, and one of the important uh, tasks of a new colonist is settlers, how to get more settlers. And there's a particular problem for Cecil Calvert, which is that is if he wanted Catholics to join this colonial project, he had to um, answer what had become the kind of litmus test for determining who is a good Catholic and who's a bad Catholic. And that's the oath of allegiance. So let me just talk a little bit about this oath because it, it's incredibly important to understand the dynamics of what Catholics faced in the English um, uh, uh, dominions. The Oath of Allegiance was enacted by King James I uh, in 1606, right after um, Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators tried to assassinate the king and members of parliament. Guy Fawkes was a Catholic and it's, it seemed to encapsulate and crystallize uh, all that was wrong with Catholics, right? Uh, Catholics are dangerous devils, right? Who are trying to subvert the state, right? And in light of this uh, act of uh, premeditated treason, uh, the oath of allegiance was issued. Now, in some ways, the oath was a simple oath of allegiance to the king, right? It pledged that uh, you would be faithful and allegiant to the king and his heirs and successors. But there were other clauses that made this particularly problematic for Catholics to sign, and they concerned papal authority. Effectively, the Oath of Allegiance said, you cannot believe and enact any kind of belief based on the fact that the Pope has the power to intervene in the affairs of England. In the most extreme cases, authorizing the excommunication, uh, the deposition, or indeed even the murder of, of royalty. Um, that was the, the uh, strong fear of the king after Guy Fawkes' uh, assassination attempt, but it was also the pervasive Protestant culture, right, that saw Catholics as traitors in waiting, right? Those who delivered themselves up to a higher authority, even higher than the king himself. And so Catholics were required to, um, if, if they were found and, uh, and issued this, required to swear this oath, swear against certain papal authorities. Now, the problem was that the Pope at the time said that any Catholic who swore this oath would be automatically excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And so, so here we have the problem of either swearing the oath, right, and being considered a heretic, right, or not swearing an oath, and being considered a traitor. These are not great options for English Catholics at the time. And they're certainly not good options for Cecil Calvert who wants Catholics to come to Maryland. But in order to, for Catholics to come to Maryland, they have to swear this oath. There are ship searchers who go around the boats um, around London. And before they, they go aboard uh, to the new world, you have to swear this oath. So this is a very, very, pointed problem for Cecil Calvert to, to solve. And what I found in the archives in London is that Cecil Calvert tries to amend this oath. Now there are a lot of uh, uh, Holy See officials, uh, court officials in London, um, priests, lay people trying to solve this oath of allegiance problem. 
And Sessaclavert is one of the only ones to find a, a, a solution that both London and Rome tacitly approve. And it actually is enacted in Maryland law. And Cecil Calvert in one of the drafts of this oath uh, effectively has the same kind of oath as the original oath. Um, and so what I found is that Cecil Calvert is actually willing to swear that he does not believe that the Pope has this kind of power in temporal affairs. He does not have the power to depose kings. Um, but of course uh, that would not pass Rome. And so what Cecil Calvert does in his legal training uh, cleverly simply excises these clauses. Uh, leaves it in a state of, of kind of ambiguity of whether Catholics believe this or not. As long as they simply swear to the king that they're going to be allegiant and, and good subjects, then that should be sufficient. And this does appease both parties. And so it's enacted in 1638. And this is the sort of oath that Maryland settlers have to swear. And Catholics can swear this in good conscience, um, to swear uh, loyalty to one's temporal sovereign is um, is particularly uh, is is absolutely fine. Now, was this a Catholic colony? Well, if we mean by that a kind of church-state unity, right? It certainly was not. Cecil Calvert envisioned uh, a non-established um, uh, colony in which even the Church of England would not have preferential treatment, um, and this caused some controversy. Uh, it caused controversy even among Catholics as well. I mean, after all, the Jesuits, who were uh, some of the priests who came to uh, bring the spiritual uh, resources and the sacraments uh, to Maryland, uh, uh, bristled at the fact that they were not able to receive the kind of privileges and immunities that they were used to in Europe. So Sikovert would not treat them any more than gentlemen. Uh, they were required to vote. They were required to pay taxes. Uh, they required to obey civil law and be tried in civil courts and not ecclesiastical ones. And so what Cecil Calvert tried to do is create a, a colony that was that did not have an established church, that did not treat Christians preferentially, um, one Protestant over one Catholic, um, but try as far as possible to create a kind of uh, regime of toleration. And it has been said, I think, with um, uh, some some sort of piety, that Maryland was named after uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, well, in the first instance, in fact, it was named named after Henrietta Maria, uh, the Queen Consort to Charles I. This is a an exercise in 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 state building, as I see it. Um, and even though Cecil Covert was Catholic, he did not want to create a situation where Protestants would, would see Catholics as, as uh, somehow preferentially treated. And so we find in 1649, the Act Concerning Religion, also known as the Maryland Toleration Act. This is one of the first codified laws in, in the English domains for religious toleration. It's an extraordinary document. Um, this happens decades before the English Toleration Act, which still excluded Catholics after the revolution of 1688. Um, no other colony, save maybe Rhode Island, um, although Rhode Island's laws um, are, are not very explicit about religious toleration and liberty. Um, this explicitly offers toleration to all Trinitarian Christians. So both Protestants and Catholics um, would, would enjoy this kind of toleration, that no one would be, to quote the Maryland Toleration Act, molested on account 
of the free exercise of religion. Now, what's curious about this document, though, is that it specifies that everyone has to pledge allegiance to not just the king, right, but also Cecil Calvert himself. And so one of the central themes of this, of this book is to show the way in which uh, loyalty comes before liberty, that you don't receive the kind of guarantee of religious liberty or even toleration unless you pledge your loyalty to whatever sovereign presents itself as legitimate. Um, and this will continue, I want to argue, in the Amer American Republic. Um, but let's move on to the revolution before we get to the Republic. Um, it's often the case when we talk about uh, the American Revolution uh, that uh, this is a Protestant story. And of course, the majority of uh, Americans at the time were Protestant of some description. Um, and it's also the case that if we talk about Catholicism in the American Revolution and the American founding, we often talk about Catholics as the villain, right? Uh, whether it's the specter of, of the, uh, the ghosts of the Jesuits uh, or some kind of French Catholic and Native American cabal uh, to reference uh, many of the sort of anti-Catholic polemics that we see in early America. What I wanna show in this book is the way in which Catholics actually had agency, actually had voices and actually contributed to the revolution and the founding of the United States. Let me give you a few examples. Um, one of the toleration intolerable acts uh, in the run up to the revolution was the Quebec Act. Um, Protestants up and down the Eastern seaboard were exercised about this so-called intolerable act. And the Quebec Act essentially, among many other things, uh, gave the guarantee of religious toleration to Catholics in Canada. Now, many Protestants saw this not just as kind of an extension of religious, religious toleration of Catholics, but an establishment of the Roman Catholic Church in Canada, which I think uh, is much exaggerated, but that's how they viewed it in this kind of uh, stylized and exaggerated uh, polemical style. Even the Continental Congress talks about uh, Catholicism as a religion of bloodshed. Um, Catholics, though, were part of the enterprise to try to uh, bring in Canadian Catholics into the revolutionary fold. And some of these Catholics include Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Now, the Congress actually appointed Charles Carroll to go to Canada and curry favor with Catholics. He spoke French during his uh, education in France. Uh, he knew French fluently. He was Catholic, of course. And so Congress appointed the first Catholic that Congress appointed, this is the Continental Congress, um, to, to try to uh, curry favor with the Catholics uh, up north. Um, this was another failure, but it was important to show how Catholics were able to not just represent America to, to uh, Canadians, but also Charles Carroll represented uh, Catholics to Americans, right? The kind of, as John Adams says, a zealot supporter of the revolutionary principles, right? This is Catholics coming into, um, into their own as Republicans, as safe for, uh, for, for American democracy. When Charles Carroll comes back uh, from his Canadian envoy, um, he then signs the Declaration of Independence. He's the only Catholic to do so. And I think what's extraordinary about this act of signing the Declaration is not just that he fixes his signature to what 
um, many English people saw as a as a uh, as a compot for high treason, um, and therefore risking his uh, extraordinary wealth in uh, in Maryland. He's one of the wealthiest uh, landowners in America. Not only sort of risking his life and his uh, wealth for this, but also, as it were, uh, going against uh, what had been uh, generally considered to be sort of the Catholic stance with regard to um, obeying one sovereign. I mean, at the time that the Declaration of Independence is signed, King George III and, and the current Pope had quite friendly relations because King George was, was increasing toleration for Catholics in England. So this act is in some ways radical for Charles Carroll to do because it sort of goes against the Holy See's um, emergent policy of, of cozying up with the current monarch in Britain. The other reason why this is extraordinary is because uh, if you look at the, the sort of the essence of the Declaration of Independence, it's effectively to declare the United States as free and independent states. Now, that phrase, free and independent states, uh, comes actually from, you might call it the textbook of international law at the time, a book called The Law of Nations. And in this book, that phrase comes up. And Benjamin Franklin talks about how people are actually reading this book in the Continental Congress as they're thinking about these international disputes. So what I found is that this, this phrase, free and independent states, from this textbook, is effectively against papal authority and temporal affairs. The author of this book says, what I have in mind, um, uh, that's sort of the antithesis of free and independent states, is a situation in which the Pope has the power to intervene in other nations' affairs. So it's my view that when Charles Carroll signed the, this Declaration of Independence, he was not just declaring himself independent from the British monarchy, but also independent from claims of papal authority in temporal affairs. The same denial that we saw with Cecil Calvert uh, um, in denying that the Pope has the power to intervene in his own colonial affairs. Now, when we get to the US Constitution, uh, we find Catholics again making important contributions to its framing, its ratifying, and its understanding. One of the important clauses from the Constitution before it was amended was the no religious test clause. Uh, this is effectively um, the clause that says the US Congress, uh, any kind of public office holder generally uh, on the federal state level cannot have, um, cannot be denied public office because of his or her religious beliefs. And so we have, again, this, this um, breaking from the long tradition in England and in Europe of, of having certain religious tests for public office, that you had to be Protestant or a certain kind of Protestant to be a mem member of parliament, for instance. And so what's remarkable about this is that Daniel Carroll, one of the other Carrolls, the second cousin of Charles Carroll, uh, is able to walk into the US House of Representatives for the first federal Congress, and no one um, really uh, criticizes him for doing so. He's a duly elected member, um, there's, there's no one there to prevent him from walking in and voting and taking an oath that has nothing to do with papal, papal authority, but simply to support the Constitution. I mean, that's an extraordinary moment in church-state history. John Carroll, the first bishop of the United States, also publicly supports this no religious test clause 
uh, especially when Protestants were arguing that if we don't have some kind of religious test, we'll have all sorts of people um, being able to uh, hold public office, including Catholics and infidels and Muslims and Jews and, and so on, right? So this was not an entirely popular move, um, at least uh, among states, uh, but one that uh, all Catholics supported because they knew that this is one of the um, important uh, entrees into becoming full participants in American public life. Now, of course, the, the most important uh, part of this story is the First Amendment. And what's extraordinary about the Catholic contribution to the First Amendment is that there were two Catholics who helped to shape it. Now, of course, the, the amendment itself comes from James Madison, uh, who presents a set of amendments for Congress to consider, um, and those include the religion uh, clauses of the First Amendment. Uh, what's important about the M Madison's uh, uh, issuance of, of these amendments is that Daniel Carroll sits, uh, was sitting in, in, in the federal Congress, stands up and speaks unambiguously, explicitly and positively on behalf of Madison's amendments. He says uh, very glowing things about the rights of conscience and how government should not intervene in these, in these affairs. And that he did not really care about the phraseology as long as it sort of captures the right kind of sentiment in favor of religious freedom. So I see Daniel Carroll as a kind of godfather of the First Amendment. I see it's, this is not just some kind of uh, singular effort of James Madison, but uh, a kind of coordinative effort between James, Ma James Madison and his friend, Daniel Carroll. I've un un uncovered correspondence between Carroll and Madison, in which they're trying to strategize ways in which they can appease the anti-federalists, those who were against ratifying the constitution as it stood. Uh, appease them. And one of the ways to appease them is to state explicitly that the United States Congress shall not establish uh, a, a church. Now, the other important point uh, to mention, and I'll close, close with the First Amendment and the establishment of the Sea of Baltimore, is that the first history that we have, the only record, uh, reliable record that we have for the proceedings of the um, discussions and so on of the First Amendment comes from a Catholic. In fact, the whole Congressional Register, which is what became the kind of uh, official doc document of the proceedings of Congress, comes from Thomas Lloyd. Thomas Lloyd is a Catholic. He was born in London, and he studied at the same Jesuit colleges in France as all the Carrolls did. In fact, John Carroll, the, the Bishop of the United States, taught Thomas Lloyd before Lloyd came to Maryland. And so what I found is Lloyd actually elevates Daniel Carroll's response in Congress in favor of the First Amendment to a kind of status of oratory rather than simply um, showing that he's, he, he was, agree, was in agreement with the First Amendment. He actually shows him uh, to uh, uh, sort of highlights his speech as opposed to all the others who spoke um, with, with some amendments uh, to what James Madison wanted. So Catholics actually wrote the first history of the First Amendment in the Congressional Register by the Catholic Thomas Lloyd. Now, let me end with the establishment of this first diocese. John Carroll uh, was the first bishop. And here again, we have uh, someone who is um, 
trying to come to terms with right a Catholic diocese in a non-Catholic country. This is one of the first times this has happened um, in the history of the Catholic Church, where you um, since the Protestant Reformation at least. Um, and he actually is elected not by uh, or appointed not by the Pope, but elected by his fellow clergy. And he insists on this because he does not want to make it look like the Pope has the kind of direct power in the affairs in the United States. So in correspondences and in public pamphlets, John Carroll consistently uh, disagrees with the Protestant characterization of Catholics as believing in papal infallibility and thinking that the Pope can intervene in American affairs. At every step, the Carrolls and the Calverts show the ways in which um, Catholics should have full re religious liberty because they do not believe these two points about papal authority. And you can see this in the architecture of um, what we're now celebrating is the 200th anniversary of the Baltimore Cathedral. This is a thoroughly neo-Roman looking uh, structure. In fact, uh, John Carroll commissioned the same architect, uh, Latrobe, who redesigned the US Capitol for this cathedral. And I think that's a fitting monument for the kind of Catholicism that the Calverts and the Carrolls wanted to project to their non-Catholic um, counterparts. A Catholicism that was uh, authentically Catholic, as it were, with all the sacraments and so on inside the church, but presented itself on the outside as reliably um, part of its own political culture. So I'll end there and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Michael. I might I might take a, a privileged, uh, my privileged status to ask a few of my own questions while people come up with theirs. Um, I'm, I'm particularly struck by the, by your image of the cathedral uh, basilica in, in Baltimore. I had a student once who, who wrote on how that was uh, liturgically changed over the years. It, it became more and more Catholic looking over the years. And then when they did the big restoration, they took out the stained glass windows. They made it look more, well, Protestant again. Um, and that leads me to my question, which is that um, how would you respond to a critic who didn't question the historical facts of the story you tell in Dear Bot Liberty, which is very finely told, a, a very sort of tight historical narrative of a, of a very important period in our history, but who thought this, this was actually precisely our problem. That, that this is what gave us the deracinated liberal Americanist Catholicism of Kennedy, Cuomo, and Biden. That is to say, a critic could use the same historical evidence to argue that Kennedy and Biden, who you began with, um, are simply the heirs of the story you tell. And this doesn't lead to a robustly Catholic uh, approach to America, but to a dissenting liberal Catholicism that haunts us and stands not to our credit, but to our shame. What would you say to that reading? That's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think this is speaking to the uh, pointedly the, the political implications um, of this history. The book itself uh, argues that Catholics became American by declaring independence from the Pope in these two matters, right? On papal infallibility and the 
papal authority to intervene in the temporal affairs of nations. That's the, if you, if you deny those two things, then you empty the set of reasons for non-Catholics to uh, not tolerate you, right? I mean, if you look at John, John Locke's letter concerning toleration as just a paradigmatic example and not the only, um, this is what he's concerned about, that, that Catholics deliver themselves up to a, a foreign arbitrary prince who uh, enacts um, what he uh, calls sort of a, a mental slavery. Right? Um, and so this is the, the kind of strategy that early American Catholics had. And I don't think it's just some matter of, of pragmatism or some kind of sly strategy to, um, to uh, find their way into uh, power, political power, religious power. I think this is um, something that they authentically believed, as far as I can tell. Um, and um, they had certainly uh, lots of ecclesiological, theological, metaphysical um, uh, uh, discussions uh, and books to rely on, uh, stemming from, as you mentioned, Chad, right, the Middle Ages and the conciliarist movement of the, of the Middle Ages, starting with John of Paris. Now, um, with regard to those who um, see this story as exactly the problem, um, I think I think you can see it either way, whatever your preconceptions are, right? That is to say, you can see this as saying, yes, this is exactly the sort of uh, strategy that we need to have, right? Um, or you can see that as a part of, or you might say the, the core problem, right? Now, of course, um, part of the solution that these early American Catholics had um, is no longer available to, to Catholics. Um, Vatican I uh, defined papal infallibility um, as a dogma of the church. Now it's with some irony that a, a council did so, right? So uh, in some ways, um, conciliars would have to grant this insofar as councils and the bishops coming together infallibly taught that the Pope can be infallible by himself. Um, the, the question of the papal intervention in temporal affairs, I think there actually are uh, many American Catholics who would look at you quite quizzically and say, well, of course, Pope Francis does not have the power to depose, you know, a president or something like that, whatever the analog would be um, in the case of um, early modern uh, period of, of excommunication of a king or deposition of a king. Um, but of course, uh, popes have intervened in uh, affairs of other countries. Um, indeed, Pope Francis, uh, speaking to a joint session of Congress several years ago, um, spoke uh, on, you might say, putatively political matters, right? On uh, immigration, abortion, um, the environment. Uh, and so when Pope speaks in this capacity, he does not understand himself uh, to do so for the sake of temporal ends, but for the sake of spiritual ends, for the salvation of souls, for the amelioration of some evil or the pursuit of some good. Um, but I think some American Catholics, as it were, still hold to this view that, uh, uh, to quote one of President Obama's uh, spokespeople when Pope Francis was coming to America, uh, the Pope Francis is, is a pastor, not a politician. Well, in some ways he's both, right? He's a head of state. Um, the Holy See has a seat in the United Nations and so on. Um, but to your question about the way in which um, this story, as it were, indicates uh, some of the problems um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, some kind of, um, as it were, rift, right, between church teaching and the way in which Catholics understand their role as public officials. Yes, I think, I think there is something there. Um, 
you know, when, when uh, uh, John F. Kennedy says, uh, the church does not speak um, for, for me, right, on public affairs, uh, we would sort of ask to, have to ask ourselves um, or ask Kennedy, how would that be possible, right? Insofar as as a Catholic, you are formed in your conscience, hopefully by Catholic teachings and the authorities that teach those things. Um, and so what he wants to do, I think, is, is not just have a kind of separation of church and state in kind of juridical way, but a kind of uh, hermeneutic seal somehow between um, the, uh, um, his conscience, right, and whatever the church says. And I think that that is a puzzle. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways it might work rhetorically, um, but it, I think substantively um, I, I see it wanting. Um, it, it becomes very difficult to square that insofar as we're hylomorphic beings, right? Body and soul, and we're um, uh, formed in our consciences by, by authorities outside of ourselves. Mentioned is interesting because the hylomorphic bond is one which would suggest that the, that the body was subject to the soul and that the state in some sense should be subject to the church. And what you opened with was precisely the question of Eucharistic coherence, that our bishops are debating whether or not they actually are going to um, deny communion to President Biden. Isn't that an exercise of spiritual authority which has temporal political ramifications? Yes, I think um, however the bishops decide in this matter, whether it becomes a national policy or uh, as it is now uh, up to local ordinary uh, bishop to decide these matters, um, I, I think this would be an exercise in the first instance of the bishop's spiritual authority. Um, and this goes into the kind of metaphysical picture, you might say, uh, that, that uh, tries to explain this whole problem, right, of, 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 ecclesiastical authority intervening in the affairs of, 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 of temporal affairs or civil affairs. How does this work? Well, you know, the bishop in his capacity as, um, as, 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 as bishop has this kind of spiritual authority over Catholics. And um, it may have consequences that are political or temporal, but uh, in itself is a spiritual authority. And so that's the bishop's primary role. Uh, if, if people want to sort of draw the analogy uh, in, in another respect, you could argue something like bishops in their, their capacity of spiritual authority have a duty to tell uh, the faithful uh, the ways in which they should think about voting, right, and their duties as citizens. They wouldn't go so far as, at least on a prudential matter at least, um, exactly who they should vote for, but they should talk about principles and, uh, and sort of methods um, and, and church teaching that should guide their conscience. Now, one could argue maybe that um, that issuing of that kind of document sort of tips the scales one way or the other in terms of candidates or parties. Um, but that seems to be a, uh, a reasonable exercise of, of one's spiritual authority. And perhaps they should do more, right, insofar as, um, uh, you know, politics at some level um, is under the aspect of moral philosophy, which is under the aspect of of philosophy and theology. And so if you, if you own that kind of metaphysical picture, um, then the, the idea that you can sort of cordon off 
right? Questions of politics from questions of religion uh, is a kind of nonsense, right? If you have that kind of picture. If you have the picture that, um, you know, the separation of church and state is not just a juridical matter, right? But a kind of philosophical matter. Well, then you can make the kind of arguments that Kennedy made. Um, and I think that's the choice that, that Catholics uh, are faced with. What sort of worldview do they hold, right? And what I show in the book, um, without talking anything about contemporary uh, affairs really, but what I show in the book is that there's a very, very long tradition stemming from the very foundation of the English colonies uh, among Catholics, that Catholics mm -hmm. have chosen, right, this sort of anti-papalist tradition, which buys into uh, a metaphysical picture in which you, you can uh, effectively have these ecclesiastical authorities that should not touch on political affairs in such a way that would um, uh, um, raise the ire of the political majority. What do you, what do you say to um, papal condemnations of Gallicanism and its uh, cousin Americanism? What are the political implications you ask? Yeah, like, you know, um, you know, if if Va Vatican II and sorry, well, Vatican I already sits in judgment, um, or you could argue that Vatican I sits in judgment uh, upon this dear bought liberty um, in so far as it uh, is is aiming at, and then Leo XIII aims at, both Gallicanism and Americanism at once in this sort of preference for um, a, a kind of total separation in which no Catholic really needs to submit to the church on anything uh, in their political order. So it becomes very relevant with Biden's policy on abortion as to whether or not um, he counts as a good Catholic. Let me put this question a different way. Imagine a Catholic immigrant who comes to this country today who doesn't reject papal infallibility because it was taught at Vatican I. A Catholic immigrant who holds a harmonic view of Vatican I and Vatican II. A Catholic immigrant who actually thinks there's some aspects of the American founding that are in conflict with the faith. What do you say to that Catholic immigrant? Do they count as a good American if they actually don't hold what these Catholic founders did? The title, the subtitle of the book is Religious Toleration. And that is a, uh, a conscious decision. Um, I think there is a very strong tradition of natural rights thinking in the American founding. What I want to suggest, though, is that at some level, uh, what we have for everyone, not just Catholics, is, in fact, religious toleration in practice. And the reason I say this is because um, when you look at the law right, of religious liberty, um, there are certain exceptions. right? This is not the kind of liberty that um, allows re religious people to do anything they want, right? You, in other words, you have to abide by whatever law is placed uh, in front of you, unless there are certain carve-outs, right? But carve-outs, exemptions, and so on, is to trigger, I think, a tolerationist regime, right? That is to say, we will tolerate something 
that we have litigated against, right, or passed a law against um, that doesn't fit within the legal scheme, but we will tolerate it. We'll exempt it, we'll tolerate it, uh, but it's not our preference, right? Um, so the, the point about uh, Catholics in this, in this period, right, and Catholics in the 19th and 20th century and perhaps today, is that Catholics have always lived under a regime of toleration and not full religious liberty. Um, precisely because in some ways at any moment, right, um, there could be laws that are against certain Catholic teachings that don't trigger the exemptions, right? And so it's precisely at those moments uh, in history that I've identified in the early American period, but I think, you know, I could identify 19th and 20th century cases as well, moments in which um, everything's fine with Catholics until, right, there's Catholic schools, until there's a Catholic colony, until uh, we have a Catholic president, right, or a Catholic candidate for president. Um, then that triggers, right, all the kind of anti-Catholic animus and so on. The same story, I think, it, with different characters and contexts and so on, but essentially the same story could be told about Mormons in the 19th century, about Muslims in the 20th and so on, uh, Jews as well, right? Um, you know, the fact that uh, American laws and practice has um, uh, decided against religious belief exercise, it's not necessarily a bug in the constitutional code. It's in some ways a feature, right, of the American public in which America is a jealous sovereign, right? Um, and so in some sense, at some level of analysis, I want to suggest, um, we all live in a kind of uh, regime of toleration. Um, and I think, you know, the, the people that, you, that you're um, channeling here about who see maybe some conflict here, uh, I think that that might make some sense to them that they feel that there's a kind of maybe toleration of their faith, but not a, a full welcome or full guarantee that they'll continue to be able to practice or engage uh, their their um, their place of work, right, or their schools and so on, in the manner that comports with their faith. There are constant challenges to that, um, and uh, an exemption regime is just you know a kind of toleration regime that could eventually lead to kind of persecution. Um, so, in some ways, the book, you know, for the people that you mentioned, in some ways, the book is a kind of monitory tale, right, a kind of warning, you might say. Of if this is right, the compromise, and if you don't, as it were, um, line up to that com compromise, well, then you'll have to find <laughs> another strategy um, or some other way to sort of get along, right? Um, let me just end this particular response with um, an historical example uh, the naturalization oath of the United States. Um, is essentially the same oath that we have today as it was in 1795. Um, this is the oath that says, I have, uh, I pledge full allegiance, undivided allegiance to the United States. And it forswears, right? Goes sort of um, uh, disavows any other allegiance to any power, prince, potentate, and so on. Now, it, it, it always strikes me as odd that um, immigrants have to say the word potentate, right? Um, but this actually comes from uh, English oaths of allegiance, supremacy, uh, from an anti-Catholic legal corpus. Um, now, they excised the word prelate 
which was a reference, of course, to the Pope. They excised that. But in the congressional debate on what the oath should, uh, the oath text should be, Samuel Dexter of Massachusetts goes into some length uh, about how Catholicism is not compatible with our Republican regime. And the only one who sort of stands up and, and says, hold on, is James Madison and says, look, I, I know a lot of Catholics. He was referring to the Carols, of course. Um, they fought in the American Revolution valiantly, right? Uh, they died with the Protestant brethren. Um, they support the American regime and its laws. There's no problem here. Um, I mean, that's essentially the argument that look at all these faithful, loyal Catholics, right? It doesn't go to level of here is perhaps where the uh, divergence of, I don't know, political theology, right? Or metaphysics of how we view sort of church state relations at a very high level. It doesn't go there, right? So, I mean, in some ways, uh, Catholics have been able to continue to be tolerated and so on, in part because we do what the Calverts did, right? Which is simply excise the clauses that are problematic, right? But the reason why we're having this discussion about President Biden is because he's a high profile person and he's thrown open uh, this, uh, this, this uh, enduring drama, right? Of church state relations. Uh, and uh, I think now people are beginning to question, right? This kind of, uh, the, the kind of American Catholic compatibility um, that had been purchased by this kind of anti-papalist tradition. That's so good, and it's, it reminds me that um, of a kind of, well, uh, that ambiguity that you pointed to in the revision of the Oath of Allegiance, that Catholicism that leaves allegiance to the Pope ambiguous, is actually inscribed in the very title of your book, Dear Bot Liberty. There's a kind of ambiguity as to how you see that phrase, dear bot liberty. It's either a dear bot liberty and, and that it is really delivering you something or the price is too high. The price is too high. And I think these are two ways of reading the very fine history that you've presented to us and we're all indebted to. So thank you very much, Professor Breidenbach. Thank you. There's my audio. <laughs> Thank you again, uh, Chad and Michael, for joining us, and 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 Michael, you for taking the time to write this book. It's been great having you here, um, you know, to talk about your work and how it relates to you know our current culture, um, and mm -hmm. you know how Catholics can live this integrated life within that. Um, framework and dynamic. Uh, again, for those of you watching, thank you for joining us. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media and, uh, and to sign up for our e-news.